Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and thanks for tuning in. Now, later in the program, COVID-19. It's drastically raised tensions between China and the West. And this week, both sides of federal politics, both the government and opposition, they've hit back at Beijing's threat of a trade and tourism boycott amid a push for an investigation into the origins of the virus. So how should Canberra deal with China? Stay with us for my chat with former Foreign Minister Alexander Downer. But first, until recently, Australians experienced nearly 30 years of unbroken economic growth, with low inflation and low unemployment, and no great widening in inequality. From the FT, to The Economist, to The Wall Street Journal, we were all too often dubbed the miracle economy. Now though, thanks to the coronavirus, and of course the coming global recession, we've entered into a new and dangerous environment. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. The consensus, of course, is that Scott Morrison has led the way out of the national emergency, which has gripped the nation since the pandemic spread nearly two months ago. Indeed, one of my next guests took to the front page of, of all places, the Australian newspaper to praise the PM. The headline, champion of the left has plaudits for conservative PM. <laughs> However, even on the more optimistic forecasts, a lot of Australians are going to nurse losses in jobs, businesses, hopes and dreams. So how do we get out of this deep recession and how do we attract risk capital to finance Australia's economic renewal? More government intervention and state planning or a new reform agenda that sharpens the incentives to work, save, invest and hire? Well, let's hear two views. Michael Stushbury is the editor-in-chief of the Australian Financial Review and a former editor of the Australian newspaper. And Ben Oquist is executive director at the Australia Institute in Canberra. Michael, Ben, welcome back to RN. Thanks for having me. Now, Ben, uh, tell us why you, as head of our nation's leading progressive think tank, why you've supported Scott Morrison's response so far. Well, I do separate that, that kind of economic response to the health response. But I, I go back six weeks uh, and I remember a lot of people very worried about where the country was heading and that a lot of people were going to die. We're warning that we could end up like Italy or Spain and that there were going to be a lot of deaths in Australia and that people were going to lose their grandparents. It was only six or seven weeks ago a, a lot of people were saying that, a lot of my colleagues were saying it. And so fast forward um, those four or five weeks and the opposite had happened. Um, the Prime Minister had succeeded because he'd put... Um, he'd listened to scientific and health advice from doctors and professionals and he put the well-being of Australians ahead really of a, of a, a set of narrowly defined economic interests and by doing that uh, he saved many lives in Australia um, probably with some good luck too um, but Australia became a world leader in fighting a pretty sinister and global uh, pretty sinister global disease uh, he and the premiers um, put prevention um, uh, ahead of cure. They knew that prevention was better than cure. I think on the on the economics, there's still a, a lot of work to do. The wage subsidy was good, but he's missed big sections of the economy too, arts and entertainment. And the reality is we're not going to snap back. So I think the economic debate has got a long way to go. But on the health front, uh, the Prime Minister succeeded uh, with the state premiers, and it was worth reflecting upon that. Well, Jonathan Friedland in the UK Guardian quipped, quote, just as there are no atheists on a sinking ship, 
there are no free marketeers during a pandemic. Michael Stutchbury, you're a leading free marketeer. You're editor of our nation's leading business publication. Now, you've supported the federal government's various stimulus packages. Does that mean we should expect a bigger role for government in the post-coronavirus economy? I think it would be hard to um, wind back some of the big big government spending, if you like, some of the big programs. But I think overall this is not really an ideological moment. Uh, This is like a national emergency. It's like wartime. It's like if the Martians had landed or a meteorite strike or some big national emergency. And when it's like the picture theatre is on fire, you've just got to put the thing out and you might cause a bit of damage, but you've you've got to put the fire out. So I think it's really not an ideological thing. I don't think in, in economic terms the Morrison government was particularly ideological in any case. Uh, it's not as if they'd uh, got, were doing some big austerity program. Uh, they'd basically put up the white flag to a lot of the big labour spending monuments from the from the mining and resources boom. And I think when you have something like this, a massive supply shock in terms of a health threat and a pandemic where if you don't do something, uh, if you don't stop the economy then uh, if you don't stop people going to work or get it or getting close together and you're going to have a massive health crisis, uh, you've got to do that and then you've got to do whatever you can to hold the thing together over the number of months it'll take to deal with your health crisis and just hold the, the basic infrastructure of the economy together. And, you know, in times like this, you do have to do sort of whatever it takes. So there's no ideological validation from the radical, albeit temporary, measures designed to save lives. This is not a crisis of capitalism, according to Michael Stutchbury. This is a liquidity crisis that's caused by the decision of these governments to shut down most Australian commerce to stop the spread of the virus. Uh, ben Oakwis, how would you respond to the argument that... Um, that uh, in the post-coronavirus stage, we don't need to revive the power of government? I think there's a couple of things. I think there'll be an increased public appetite for a stronger role for government. Pretty much all my adult life, the governments have been run down. Um, they've been, we've been told that you know governments have been uh, aren't good, we need less government, and that the private sector will, will fix our problems. And I guess this crisis has told us the opposite is true. You know, the, we couldn't produce enough face masks and ventilators mm. without government support and action, and we needed uh, government to uh, rescue people's um, uh, jobs or, or at least livelihoods um, through a, an increase in Job Seeker and then the Job Keeper program. So, I think it's going to be an increased appetite for a stronger role for government, and I don't think that the economy is going to snap back fast. And when we we've probably seen twenty percent of the economy closed down, most people are thinking of a ten percent loss to GDP. And even if growth comes back a bit, that's a big loss of GDP that won't come back anytime uh, quick. And that's not to say that you know socialism is going to take hold and that governments are going to be running uh, petrol stations or or uh, car repair shops. But I do think uh, there's going to be a a wider discussion about a bigger uh, support uh, and role for government. I mean, who... who Well, Michael Sussbury, Ben Oakwist is hardly alone here. He's hardly alone here. You've got... uh, And it's not just get up and the unions on the left. You've even got people like Greg Sheridan from the Australian newspaper writing many columns. He's, He's been on this program in the last few weeks questioning economic reform, even questioning globalisation. Michael, what do you make of this, these rising sentiments against market economics on both left and right? 
Yeah, as you say, it does come from the left and the right. Uh, we've just seen uh, before this crisis hit, and it is, you know, I think we, it is one of the most extraordinary things any of us have ever seen. Uh, you, you saw basically repudiation of big government, as you might think, on the left, the repudiation of Corbyn in the UK, Bernie Sanders in the US and Bill Shorten in Australia. So I don't think there's that underlying mood to go back to a big government role. I think it might be hard to, once you give out a whole lot of stuff to people, uh, various payments, it's sort of human nature that and it's politically political economy or that is it's hard to withdraw it. But I think the big imperative will be that we will have an economy that has been through a massive shock. Uh, we've, we're not quite sure how well it will come back. I don't think anyone really knows how many, uh, you know, whether people want to go on holidays straight away or eat out and that'll get the economy back. Uh, presumably it's a big shock and it won't be all that easy. But the real imperative will be we've got to get the economy growing again. Uh, we've got to get growth so we can pay down the increased debt. You're going to have to really sharpen incentives. And I think Australians sort of know that. They're not going to be against globalisation. There's very high level of support for globalisation in Australia. Sure, we're going to have to produce, you know, maybe a bit more bit more of medical, medical supplies and equipment to have a little bit more in supply and so forth. But the overwhelming imperative will be to sharpen incentives to get economic growth back. And even before the crisis, we needed to do that. Uh, productivity was weak. We'd been through a couple of decades really resting on the laurels of the resources boom. And this has brought it home to roost now that we're going to have to sharpen incentives and get growth going, not just sort of suffocate it with bigger government and higher taxes. My guests are Michael Stashbury from the Financial Review and Ben Oquist from the Australia Institute. Ben, following on from Michael, uh, this is a crisis and many people say that a crisis is a, an ideal time to put in place a big bang economic reform agenda. There is historical precedent. Uh, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating used the balance of, balance of payments and the currency crisis of the mid-1980s to kickstart a reform agenda. Um, do, do, I mean, how would you respond? You're ahead of a progressive think tank. When you hear the Financial Review centre-right think tanks like the Centre for Independent Studies, which I run, when we champion productivity-enhancing economic reform to get the Australian economy moving out of this crisis, how do you respond? Well, a couple of things. I think there's going to be an aggregate demand problem. So there's going to be a need for a greater government investment just on a simple kind of Keynesian stimulus side. But on the other hand, the, the old problems of inequality and low-wage growth that were there before the crisis aren't going to go away and we'd still need to do something to address them. But the the need for a and, – and Michael touched on this. We've relied too much on the mining industry. The need for, need for a more uh, diversified, resilient, uh, modern economy uh, with a stronger, fairer revenue uh tax base that uh, tackles the big challenges of climate change or rampant un unregulated big tech or inequality remain. Um, and that's going to take uh, some more government involvement. And that doesn't mean that government runs every business, but the idea that it's just business-led and there won't be a, a role for government in shaping that new, modern, more resilient economy that maybe looks to a stronger manufacturing base that we've uh, let go uh, means means a, a more activist government. And I think I think there's going to be a hankering in the public for that. And I think the, the economy will require it simply because it will have taken such a big hit and snapback is just unlikely. 
I wonder, Michael, you know, you think about Winston Churchill winning World War II and yet a few months later he got smashed in a landslide by Clement Attlee on the grounds that he wasn't socialist enough. Will there be this hankering in the public for high levels of government intervention post-coronavirus? Michael Stashbury. Yeah, look, look I, I don't think so. I think, and you raised the point about, say, Greg Sheridan before and those on the right hankering for the, some of the similar things in a way that, not, not completely the similar, similar, but a big overlap with what Ben's saying. On the right, you get this sort of Trump nationalist thing, which you get echoed in some of Morrison's talk about sovereignty. And on the left, you can get that sort of thing for, oh, let's get a manufacturing base back. And you think, well, how are you going to do that? Well, how do you do that? Uh, do you have the government direct uh, manufacturing? Do you bring back protection? Uh, and I think we all know, and you get people like uh, Andrew Liveris, head of Dow Chemicals, ex-head of Dow Chemicals, who um, uh, is on the this uh, post-COVID commission that Morrison set up, and he's criticised those who have drunk the free trade Kool-Aid, as he says, the sort of thing that <laughs> ben, ben might say, you know, from way over in uh, sort of Trump-style American capitalism. But I think for Australia, it's uh, to get manufacturing back would be a good thing. And sure, we might want to have a little bit to make sure we've got a little bit more medical supplies and maybe some pharmaceuticals and a few things like this. But overall, we're not going to revive a manufacturing sector by turning inwards by protecting it from global competition, we've got to become get the manufacturing sector to become competitive, to get its cost base down. We've got to have a more sort of uh, productive industrial relations system, a better tax system, lower energy costs, and, and make it competitive and expand that way as the way to bring back manufacturing, which would be a good thing. Michael, Ben, a stimulating discussion to be continued. Thanks so much for being on RN today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks both. Michael Stutchbury is Editor-in-Chief of the Financial Review, and Ben Oquist is the Executive Director at the Australia Institute in Canberra. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, moving on from the economics of recovery to how we deal with China. Now, Beijing's delay in informing the world about the virus, its suppression of whistleblowers and its lack of transparency, that's angered many, in particular, its inflamed tensions with Washington. This week, Scott Morrison called for an independent inquiry into China's handling of the virus, which made the Chinese ambassador in Canberra hit back with threats of economic boycotts against us. Tensions are rising. So what do we do? We are heading into perhaps our worst ever recession, but we're still highly dependent on our exports to China. How can we push back? Well, Alexander Downer, he's Australia's longest serving Minister of Foreign Affairs. He's in the job for the best part of a dozen years. These are the Howard years from early 96 to late 2007. Now, of course, this was an era that supercharged our trade relationship with China. It brought us the mining boom and enormous prosperity to the country. But Alexander Downer's view on China is shifting and he joins us now. Alexander, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure. Now, in your AFR column recently, you demanded that China be held accountable for its role in the pandemic. Does that mean you agree with President Trump who suggested that uh, the US will make China pay substantial compensation for economic damages caused by the virus? No, I don't agree with that. I don't think we should be chasing compensation from anybody. I think what there should be is a genuinely independent investigation into what has happened here. That is, what is the source of this virus? We just don't want to see it happen again. And the problem for China is that the SARS virus 
started in Guangdong and, you know, not a huge number of people were killed. But in this case, the global economy has been brought to a halt to, what is it, 200,000 people are dead as a result of it. The truth is we've got to investigate it and we've got to find out how it happened. And I'm very surprised well, no, that the Chinese should be so resistant to getting to the heart of what happened. Yeah, well, well, there's there's no suggestion that the release was deliberate. What kind of investigations should there be? Well, I think because of the way the world works, um, it should be led by the World Health Organization. It should include epidemiologists and other scientists from a variety of different countries, including but not exclusively Western countries and obviously people from China. And um, it should it should be wide ranging. It needs to try to establish how this happened, not not to investigate the behaviour of the Chinese government. I don't think that um, is going to be very politic. But to investigate how um, how this how this virus broke out, what is the cause of this virus? That is what we need to investigate, and that's what we need to understand. So we never see it happen again. The Prime Minister has suggested something along the lines of UN weapons inspectors. I mean, is that feasible given China would have to grant access to Wuhan? Well, I don't know what China's problem is. The behaviour of the Chinese ambassador in Canberra is almost Mm. unprecedented. I mean, not since Mm. the days of the Soviet Union have I seen an ambassador behave in such a reckless and undiplomatic way. And what is the problem? I mean, the Prime Minister has just said there should be an investigation. The Chinese ambassador's reaction is as though China has been, you know, cornered and told that it's guilty. So I think there should be um, an investigation led by the World Health Organization, but it has to be impartial, it has to be factual, it has to be scientific. Um, And then we can look at the material that the investigation has established and um, on the basis of that, make decisions for the future. Yes, the Chinese government doesn't want to see this happen again, um, nor does the rest of the world. So uh, such an investigation could be very helpful. Okay, but how much leverage do we have, though? I mean, the Chinese ambassador, you mentioned him, he's threatened a consumer boycott of, uh, of our products like, what, beef, wine, even university courses. Now, at a time when we're heading into our worst ever recession, we've got a third of our exports still going to to China. Aren't we vulnerable to that kind of economic coercion more than any point in our history? I mean, how, how can we stand up to that? Well, his um, comments, as I say, are reminiscent of the way the Soviet Union used to talk during the Cold yeah, War. But we never had I that mean, kind I... of trade relationship with Moscow, though, did we? No, we didn't. But on the other hand, we're not going to be bullied by an ambassador who's gone rogue in Canberra. I mean, in the end, in the end, what we say is right. There should be an impartial international investigation into what has happened here. They can, of course, decide that they don't want to import anything from anywhere around the world. And given that their economy has, of course, um, suffered as a result of the coronavirus crisis, um, their economy will suffer even more. I mean, it's a completely absurd proposition. This isn't the way So are you pay. suggesting then we can't return to business as usual with China? Well, I think largely we will return to business as usual with China. It's an important export market for us. Um, I'm happy to see Chinese students studying in, in Australia, uh, 
Um, I, I have no no problems with any of that. Um, and it's in China's interest that they import the raw materials that drive the Chinese economy from Australia. Of course they can decide they don't want to import them from Australia. Where else are they going to get them from and at what price? It's not as though China has all that many choices. So I think largely things will return to as they were. My guest is Alexander Downer, Australia's longest-serving foreign minister from early 96 to late 2007. Alexander, the health minister, Greg Hunt, one of your former staffers, he held a press conference this week with uh, mining magnate Andrew Forrest uh, announcing the distribution of some PPE gear that Twiggy had secured from Beijing. And then the press conference was hijacked by a Chinese official who started praising China's response. You can't make this stuff up. What did you make of all that? This is um, the practice of Chinese officials. I was uh, at a conference in London recently when we were talking about China and there was an official from the Chinese embassy there who stood up at the end and tried to take over the whole meeting <laughs> till eventually the chairman of the meeting decided to close it down. Um, look, they've got to work with the rest of the world, not work against the rest of the world. Yes, they are richer. They are more powerful than they have been, than they have, not relatively speaking, but in absolute terms, than they have ever been before. But this is no excuse to get the rest of the world offside. They should be working with the West, working with them on the science and the epidemiology, not getting into some sort of 1950s, 1960s Soviet-style rhetoric and anti-Western behaviour. It's terribly damaging to China. In the end, it will not work for them. It will not work for them because although China is strong, its strength is nothing compared to the strength of the West and getting the Western economies and Western leadership offside, allowing this whole concept of the rise of China being a threat to America and the West, it's never ultimately going to be in China's interest to pursue that sort of diplomacy. And they've started to do that over the last few years, and I very much regret it. My guest is Alexander Downer. Alexander, let's talk a bit about the evolution of your thinking on China, because after you left political life, you joined the board of the Chinese telecommunications giant Huawei. Uh, this was in Australia in 2011. You blasted the Gillard government when they banned Huawei from the NBN rollout. This would have been late 2011 which they followed uh, intelligence reports on Huawei's possible connection to Chinese cyber attacks against Australia. Now, at the time, you said those accusations were, quote, completely absurd and a result of paranoia and sinophobia. With the benefit of hindsight, do you regret those comments? No, I don't. I think um, the early decisions in relation to Huawei were uh, were wrong. I mean, I... I course don't know everything, didn't know everything that went on within Huawei and couldn't possibly have known the details of um, their relationship with the government in Beijing. Um, but my observations were that it was pretty much a commercial operation, Huawei. It wasn't anything other than a commercial operation. When I was on the Australian board of Huawei, 70% of Huawei's business was outside of China. So they couldn't afford to be seen outside of China as just an arm of Chinese intelligence and 
they would, of course, never get any work in Australia if that was that was the reality of their role. Mm-hmm. However, um, I don't think Huawei, by the way, has changed, but I think China has changed. I think the China that the Howard government dealt with, the Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, was a very different China um, from the China we're dealing with now um, with Xi Jinping. And I, I just don't see a lot of analysis of this, but I think China has become much more assertive, much more aggressive, and is positioning itself in juxtaposition to the West, which wasn't something that um, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao uh, promoted as a, um, a as an aspect of Chinese foreign policy. I think that that is the huge difference um, and they, you know, everything from the in, in their intelligence operations, the uh, role they play in, in cyber aggression, through to what we've seen over this coronavirus issue um, and the way they've reacted to perfectly reasonable calls for um, an international investigation. This is reflecting a very different Chinese leadership from the leadership that I dealt with as the foreign minister in the, and in the years immediately after that. Um, as Graham Allison, the American academic at Harvard, would would mm-hmm. um, would point out through Thucydides his book trap. on the Thucydides trap, uh, where you have a rising power and you have status quo powers, in particular the United States, but its key allies as well, the UK, and France, Germany and Australia, Korea, Japan. These relationships have to work reasonably harmoniously, and and they have done, really. I think a succession of American presidents has handled the Chinese relationship pretty well. President Clinton, President uh, Bush, President Obama, they all did a pretty good job. President Trump, not too bad either in managing the China relationship. But I think the problem is that China has changed. China has become a great deal more aggressive. If you just take the um, the South China Sea, commitments were made by Xi Jinping not to militarise the, the reefs in the South China Sea, and they have militarised them. He said they wouldn't, and they have. And they've been extremely aggressive towards the Philippines, um, Vietnam, Indonesia, see, in the w- South on this China program Sea. over the last few years, Alexander, we've had people like Stephen Fitzgerald, our first ambassador to communist China, Jeff Raby, among others, and they'll say that uh, what China's doing in the South China Sea is just what all rising great powers do, that as their... Uh, as their power increases, their definition of their national interests grows. And just as America did the same thing in Latin America, so China's doing in the South China Sea. What's the big difference? If they think because they're a rising power, they can throw their weight around more without coming into conflict with other countries, um, they need to think, rethink their strategy and rethink it more carefully. Certainly, we should give China um, greater space. I don't mean physical space, but diplomatic space than was the case in the past. We should certainly do that because of its um, its economic and political significance in the world today. But that doesn't mean that China should arrogantly disregard the views of other countries, and in particular those powerful countries in its own neighbourhood, because arrogantly to disregard the views of those countries will in the, in the end mm. encourage tensions with those countries. Um, and that will be in nobody's interest. So my greatest worry about China 
has been in the last four or five years the increase in Chinese aggression and disregard for the sensitivities of other countries as its power rises. I think it's quite a concern. Alexander, we can keep going. It's time to wrap it up. Thanks so much for being on RN again. It's always a pleasure, Tom. Alexander Downer, he's Australia's longest serving foreign minister and our former High Commissioner to the UK. Well, that's it for the program this week and thanks for tuning in. And remember, you can head to the Between the Lines website to listen to past programs. And as always, you can listen to the ABC Listen app. This is Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next time on Between the Lines. Mm -hmm.